Let me start this podcast recording. All right, so this is Welcome on Tuesday. We're coming back to, we're very nearing the end of 1 Samuel, all right? So um, I'm going to show you a couple of things here. First of all, I was reminded today, or I remember today, depending on how I want to express it, that we cannot meet next week. We cannot meet next week because VBS has this room. VBS, Vacation Bible School, basically takes over the church. Which is a great and good thing, and it's just wonderful, and it's been, it's, it's a great and good thing, but it means that we can't meet because this room will not be available to us um, as, it, as it is every other Tuesday. So we will not meet next week, but then we will meet the next week. And looking ahead, I think that the next week we will come to the end of 1 Samuel. So we will end 1 Samuel, and then Patty and I are taking some vacation. We do lose a Tuesday to the 4th of July, but that's, you know, it's 4th of July, come on. So, so then when we reconvene the first Tuesday in August, we will begin 2 Samuel. Because Samuel, as I explained, is one scroll, it's one book, which has been artificially um, divided, and um, it's, but it's one long story, same writer or writers and editors and compilers tell this long story, and um, they, the break between first and second Samuel is appropriate and sensible in that at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul dies. And so we, I think we will get that far next week. And if we have to stay an extra five or 10 minutes after class, in two, not next week, I know, not next week. In two weeks, in two weeks, then we'll do that, okay? And we'll wanna make sure that we finish 1 Samuel. But I think between this week and next week, we will, in terms of looking at how, the speed with which we tend to go through this. So, in August, we will, we will resume. So any questions about that? I, I really forgot that we, didn't ha we were losing the room to VBS, because at first we weren't going to lose the room to VBS, but then we did lose the room to VBS. I can't keep up with anything anymore. Okay? Yeah, okay. That sounds good to me. That sounds good, yeah. So, in any event, and if any of you feel like volunteering for VBS, I know they'd love to have you. It is, a, it is quite a week up here at the church. Almost 400 kids, which is really great because it used to be numbers like that. I think five, at one time we had like 500 kids, and, but it fell off. But now we're bringing more and more and more young families back into the church, and so the number of kids is growing, growing again, and it's great and wonderful. Great and wonderful, good thing. So, that is that. Anything y'all would like to talk about today before we plunge in? Yes? We get a Star Wars reference today. We do. Okay. We get, we get this really, she's very popularized, you know, because um, today we're going to meet the Witch of Endor, which is not actually how she's described in the Hebrew. But it's cool, right? The Witch of Endor. Because Endor is one of the planets, is that right? Where the Ewoks live. Yeah. 
The Ewoks live on Endor. Okay. So we really know about as much as where that Endor is as we do the Endor in the book of Samuel. So Star Wars connection. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> okay. Well, let's pray. All right? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered back here today. We are grateful that you have called us here. We are grateful for the gift of your spirit who leads us through this. And we pray that you will fill us with wisdom, with insight, um, with energy and enthusiasm as we make our way through these stories of your people, our, our ancestors in the faith. These are our stories too. And um, just, just help us do this today as you're, you so kindly do every time we gather. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how is the volume on the mic? Good? Good for you guys? Uh, we're going to... Okay, so I took it up another notch or two because it, it, I was, felt like I was having to speak too loudly. All right, so we are, last week we did 26, 1 Samuel 26 and 27. And where, we, where 27 ends, what 27 is about is David's ingratiating himself to King Achish, one of the kings of the Philistines. There are five Philistine cities, five kings. Achish is one of them. David has sought sanctuary with him and David proceeded to ingratiate himself to King Achish and Achish believes that David's heart has gone over from the Israelites to the Philistines. Um, most people who read this, most commentators would say, well, no, David is tricking Achish, but it doesn't actually say that in the text, does it? So I think that ambiguity um, is okay. David's being chased by Saul, chased away from his tribe and his home and the rest of it. And David has not been confronted yet with the implications, really, of having gone over to, to, to Achish. So, but he will. He will be confronted with choices um, ahead. But for now, that's where we leave David. Um, I'm going to put this map up, okay? You can kind of ignore the lines for now. Um, that will come a little bit later as we move through these chapters. But David is down here in these, um, uh, there's Gath, there's Ekron, those are the Gaza, Eshkelon, Ashdod, those are the Philistine cities. And Ziklag, we don't really know where it is, so the map maker put it there, fine. Um, it is the place that um, David was given by Achish to go and move into and settle his men and, and their families. All right? So let's just start, let's plunge in chapter 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered the forces to fight against Israel. These are the two enemies of that time. Israel and the Philistines. Achish said to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. You've made your choice, David. You will accompany me in the army. 
And David said, well, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Dot, dot, dot for you, right? Because David is, Achish thinks that David is totally with him in every respect. And Achish replied, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So Achish is totally, what would we say today? <laughs> He's totally sold out for David, right? He believes David lock, stock, and barrel. And David has done a lot to convince him of that. So, the armies are on the move. Think of this like a movie. The, the armies are on the move. And now we're going to do a cut scene. Right? So, the pieces don't all fall in chronological order, as movies often don't. So, we're going to go to a cut scene now of a story about Saul. Now Samuel was dead. We knew that. Samuel was dead and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah on the spine of Israel. Okay? That mountainous spine. Saul had expelled the mediums and the spiritists from the land. These would be people who thought they could communicate with the dead and so forth. And there isn't anything in this text that you're going to see today which says that's impossible. But in the Law of Moses it says no. No spiritists, no mediums, no witches, none of that. Why? Because the people are God's people and they should be coming to God, not to Ida Mae Brown. Anybody know who Ida Mae Brown is? Here's, here's the shocking part. I'm thinking about this yesterday, and her name came to me. I didn't even have to look it up. I'm embarrassed by that. <laughs> so, but it is a good movie, and Whoopi's really good in it. And yeah, so Saul had settled. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land in keeping with the law of Moses. So this is something good that Saul had done. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. So this is where we're looking ahead, right? This is, where this, this is why I just don't view it all chronologically because we're going to come back to this story. But up there in the valley of Jezreel, we find Shunem and Mount Gilboa. So the Israelites are going, Israelite army is going to encamp on the south side the Philistine army is going to make their way to the north side in the valley of Jezreel. So I brought a relief map to show you what we're talking about because the Jezreel Valley is so significant in the history of, of Israel. There's all kinds of fighting and everything that happens in the Jezreel Valley. And the reason is because in Israel, it's the one place they could easily get at each other. Right? Because you have this spine, <coughs> this spine, this, <laughs> this ridge that runs along here, but then there's a break before it resumes. <laughs> I'm getting over my bronchitis and my voice is that of a 13-year-old boy. So there's the spine. So right here, this valley, green, flat, right? That is the Valley of Jezreel. That is the place you need to know. That's something you should lock away. If you go to Israel, 
there are various lookout places where you can look out over the Valley of Jezreel. This is where Haifa is, right here, in modern day Israel, Haifa. Um, but this is a really significant place and it plays a role in many of the Old Testament books. Scott, yes. That, Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai, so that's way down in the Sinai Peninsula. So the Mount Carmel is up here, right there. Right, there's this little, little bit of a, of a mountain. It's really kind of almost a mountain ridge. It's, it's a that kind of shaped mountain, not a that shaped mountain. This really is good for the podcasters when I, when I use my hands. It looks like this. Well, sorry. You know, I even use this on Sunday in my class. Thank you. Thank you. I almost blinded a few people, but there we go. They lived, they coped, but it was great. <laughs> I had this thing going everywhere. Okay, there we go. Oh, look, there's the Jezreel Valley right there. <sighs> I was kind of rushed getting ready for class. I didn't even get everything out of my bag. So there's the Jezreel Valley and the spine right there and right there, okay? And um, that little jutting out of land, that's Haifa and that's Mount Carmel. All right? That's the Sea of Galilee right there and that is the Dead Sea down here, which means Jerusalem is like here. Okay, Jerusalem is like right there on that spine. Okay, cool. So I'm going to leave that map up for a bit here. Verse 5. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of Yahweh, but Yahweh did not answer him, either by dreams or by the Urim, which is... The, like the stones, as best we can tell, from the priest's um, garments, or by prophets. So he's not hearing from God in any way, in any shape, in any form. But he wants to. He wants to ask God, or what's going to happen here? What should I do? But he isn't hearing from God. So his response to that is, Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium so I may go and inquire of her. And you're told that he had already cleared the land of mediums so that you know that this scene that's coming up will be fraught with tension because the woman is doing something she should not be doing. There is one in Endor, they said. So Endor is somewhere in, I guess uh, scholars are confident saying Endor is somewhere in Galilee up here, but exactly where? No, don't know. I think this map puts it a little bit above the Jezreel Valley, right? So it would be, I just like the colors on this thing. It would be like right, like right here. So that'd be Southern Galilee. But, but don't think that people really are sure about this, because they're not. So, but they tell Saul, his attendants tell him, there is one in Endor. 
where the Ewoks live. <laughs> so Saul disguised himself. He doesn't want to be known as the king going there. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes. And at night, he and two men went to the woman. He doesn't want to be discovered doing this. And he says to her, consult a spirit for me and bring up for me the one I name. Bring up from where? Bring up from the dead. Where are the dead? You know the answer. Where are the dead? Down here. The dead are down here. We're here. And God's up there. Very common amongst ancient people. The dead are down there. The Jews called it Sheol. The Greeks called it Hades. <coughs> the Egyptians had a name for it. They don't know what it is. But same idea. The dead are down there. Okay. But the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. He's cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Like this is all a trick to flush her out. Right? Get her to do, what would we call this in today's world? To entrap her. Yeah, that is what it would be, I think. To entrap her. So Saul swore to her by Yahweh, as surely as Yahweh lives, you will not be punished for this. Well, that's a pretty strong oath, and she buys it. And the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He says, bring up Samuel. Now let's just read this next part carefully. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice, and she said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. So here is one rather old piece of art around this. There's nothing in there about how she does it, no words she says, no Saul emerging out of the shadows. Saul is just... When she saw him, Okay, when she saw him, Samuel. Here's another one, mid-19th century, Russian artist. Samuel has been called up from the place of the dead, from Sheol. Sheol is a shadowy place. It is, the Greeks called them not ghosts, but shades who inhabited the underworld. Not the worst place to be, not the best place to be, just where the dead are. Why have you deceived me, she says. You are Saul. Now how does she know that? Either God implanted it in her brain, or she figured it out. Who has the, so much interest in raising up Samuel, other than Saul. Probably nobody. So she somehow discerns in that wonderful womanly intuition. <laughs> I look at my wife because she has so much of it. Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? He is desperate. Desperate to get answers. So much so he has called poor Saul up out of Sheol. 
The woman said, I see a ghostly figure. That's the NIV. Coming up out of the earth. Translators don't quite know what to do with that because the, the Hebrew word under ghostly figure is the word for a god, Elohim. That just means God, lowercase g. Elohim. And so, ghostly figure here in the NIV, divine figure somewhere else. I don't know of any translations that simply put lowercase g-o-d, but it's freaky, right? She might be like Ida Mae Brown, shocked that it actually worked. I don't know. And Samuel, um, Saul says, well, what does he look like? She said, he looks like an old man wearing a robe. An old man wearing a robe is coming up. Well, okay, there we go. An old man wearing a robe. I know what that looks like. <laughs> An old man wearing a robe is coming up. <laughs> yeah, so does Patty. So <laughs> she said it, not me. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Mistake number one. Not the first mistake in Saul's life. He's made a bunch. But this is another one. To whom do you bow? God. Anybody else? No. No, 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 no. People in the New Testament, people tried to bow to Peter. They tried to bow to Paul. No, no, no. We worship God. We prostrate ourselves before God. I, I, you know, you could make the case that this is mere obeisance, this, this way of expressing like who was the master, but that's not really appropriate because Saul is the king. I think it's a, I think Saul's just getting this wrong here. And he succumbs to, oh my gosh, this is, and, and remember the Hebrew even used the word God to describe, to denote Samuel coming up out of the ground. It's a freaky passage, okay? So it doesn't, it isn't necessarily one you're going to be able to completely logic your way through. Because I don't know why it's the word for God there, lowercase g. But Samuel then says to Saul, well, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Because Samuel is where he belongs. Where do the dead belong? With us? No, no. no we're the living. Where do they belong? Down there. They belong down there. And Saul has disturbed all of that by having the woman bring Samuel up. So Samuel says, why? Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul says, I am in great distress. The Philistines are fighting against me and God has departed from me. <laughs> right? We know that history with Saul. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or my dreams, so I have called on you to tell me what to do. This is why the spiritists and mediums and witches or whatever you want are prohibited under the law of Moses. Because God is the one God's people should turn to. 
God is the one God's people should turn to. We don't need to speak to distant relatives or anybody else. It is God. It is God that we should turn to and we need more help than those in this life can provide to us. So Samuel said, first of all, do you think, do you think Samuel's happy with Saul? No. Do you think he might unload on him in a bit? A bit? Yeah, probably. You know, because Samuel knows the history, right? Yeah. Right? Samuel knows the things that Saul did. Question, yes. That's a, that's, I would say that's an acceptable word because he doesn't have a material body. He's the shade. You know, it's, it's um, from, from there. His, but it does speak to the fact that death is not our end. Right? Um, when Jesus in Luke 24 comes to the disciples after his resurrection, their first reaction is to call him what? In the Greek, a ghost. Right? The Greeks, um, I don't know as much as I should about how, what word the Hebrews would use to express ghost. But you're on the right. You're on the right path. He's not materially present, but it is Samuel. Okay. So Saul says, "I've called on you because God's ignoring me. God's not picking up the phone." Samuel said, why do you consult me now that Yahweh has departed from you and become your enemy? Yahweh has done what he predicted through me. God told you what lay ahead through the words that Samuel brought him as a prophet of God, right? Yahweh has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Now those words are explicitly spoken to Saul what he already knew to David verse 18 because you did not obey Yahweh or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites that was one of the times that that um, Saul th thought he knew best and disobeyed God Yahweh has done this to you today Yahweh will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Which means, where will they be? Dead. In Sheol. They will die in battle. Tomorrow. The Lord Yahweh will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. So it's going to be a bad day all around. Saul is going to die. Jonathan's going to die. Saul's other sons are going to die. The Israelites are going to lose the battle. They've lost other battles over time. Remember back in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel when they not only lost the battle, they lost the Ark of the Covenant? Yeah. <laughs> 
So they've lost other battles. Battles come and go. But Saul is going to die. Jonathan's going to die. Saul's other sons are going to die. Oh. Verse 20. Immediately, Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. I don't really want to know if I'm going to die tomorrow. What? He did ask. That is so true. You better, what, what, yeah. You better be careful what you ask, huh? Yeah. So immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and all that night. So he's hungry, might be hangry even. He's hungry, he's weak. Samuel out of the grave. Coming up out of Sheol, the place of the dead has brought him the word from God that he's going to die tomorrow and his sons are going to die tomorrow and that the words from long ago are true, that the kingdom has been ripped from Saul's hands and it's been handed to whom? David, the very one that Saul has been chasing all of this time, the very one who spared Saul's life at least twice, once in the cave and then once in the camp. Chapters 24 and 26. So, wow. Wow. No matter how much you think you might have prepared yourself to hear something like this, I don't think you could be well prepared. And Samuel, I mean Saul, is just about gone at this point. Well, verse 21. When the woman... You know, let's talk about the woman for a second, you know. She became popularized over the centuries as the witch of Endor. The witch of Endor. But the word witch is never used here. She isn't a witch in the sense of the way the ancient world meant that. She's a medium, a spiritist. Those are better words, closer to the Hebrew. She's a medium, she's a spiritist. And what, and like I said, there's nothing in here to indicate that this is impossible. It just shouldn't be done. You see the difference? It just shouldn't be done. You know, people want to ask me sometimes, what happens to me after I die? And I'm, can, you know, can I, I don't get this question very much. Could I go back and like talk to my relatives? Or I maybe not have ever gotten that one at all. But God's response is you're going to be with Christ that's, that is more than sufficient, more than sufficient. So put your anxieties to rest. You'll be with Christ. You will be with Christ. Um, and Saul here is just messing in all kinds of things he shouldn't be messing in. And it's, it's, it's one final terrible choice by Saul and one final illustration of how far from God Saul has fallen. So, 
when the woman came to Saul and saw that, verse 21, when the woman came to Saul and saw that he was greatly shaken, she said, look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to do. Because she could have said, oh, I can't do that, but she didn't. We're not told how, what she did, but she did. Saul wanted Samuel, and he got Samuel. So she says, now please listen to your servant, and let me give you some food so you may eat and find the strength to go on your way. <laughs> she wants rid of him. He's nothing but trouble as far as she is concerned, right? So he refuses and says, I will not eat. But the men, the two men, remember he brought two men with him, joined the woman in urging him, and he listened to them. And he got up from the ground and sat on the couch. Like a piece of furniture, something to sit on. They had, like, furniture and stuff back then. Something. The woman had a fattened calf at the house, which she butchered at once. She took some flour, she kneaded it, and baked bread without yeast. Why without yeast? Faster. What? Faster. Faster. You don't have to wait for it to rise. Same thing as with the Exodus, right? You're going to make unleavened bread because you don't have to wait for the bread to rise with the yeast. Same thing as that the... I don't think we're supposed to see any deep connection to the Exodus here. It's just practical. She wants rid of the guy. So she's not going to wait for her rolls to rise. She's going to make unleavened bread. However, she does have the time to butcher a cow or an animal <laughs> and eat it and cook it. Now, I don't know how long that takes, but I imagine that, I imagine that takes a long time. I've never done that. I've never butchered a calf into pieces and then barbecued it. But, you know, whatever. If those are the questions I bring to this story, I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> then, verse 25, she said it before Saul and his men, and they ate, and that same night they got up and left. So, she, she does what Saul asks. She lives up to the norms of hospitality that are very strong in this culture. And she feeds them, um, and she took, she took a lot of personal risk in doing what this man told her to do because it had been outlawed. But she did it. And um, perhaps God played a part in her doing of it. So, any thought, what are your thoughts or reflections on that story? Famous story, Endor. Yes. What? A strong woman. She is a strong woman in this story, isn't she? Yes. You know, it's 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 really, you know, she she comes across to me as an as an equal with Saul, going back and forth, right? Yeah. So so she is. Um. What happened to Samuel? Well, when this is over, where did Samuel go? Back there. That's where he didn't want to have to leave. That's where he belongs. You know, it's sort of like that's where he belongs. Because he is dead. And where are the dead? Down there in Sheol. So that is where he should be. 
Now the Jews, you know, in really this growing, we're going to call it, well, this, this is still like more than a thousand years before Jesus. So in the period before Jesus, the Jews have this growing sense of something more than Sheol. And, and an appeal you see even in the Psalms to rescue me from essentially the watery grave, rescue me from the depths of Sheol, that seem to anticipate a time when death will be defeated and people will be liberated from Sheol or Hades or wherever you want to think of the place of the dead. And this you see even in, in the New Testament when it says Jesus went down to preach to the spirits in prison, those who were even from the days of Noah. So it's... How did what? Well, the Greeks call it Hades, and we transferred it into hell. But we have Samuel, who would, in today's standard, would be a saint. Right. Living in hell with all the criminals. And, well, no, 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 see. So Don raised a very good point. Hades is the place of the dead. Sheol is the place of the dead. What happens is that slowly, over time, post-Jesus, especially in the 3rd, 4th, 5th century, Hades takes on this connotation of a place of punishment. But it isn't a place of punishment. It's just where the dead are. It's where Samuel is. It's where Achilles is. It's where Abraham is. Good and bad, they're all down there together. Now, the Greeks themselves began to develop ideas in say the century approaching Jesus where there would be sort of maybe different areas down there. Maybe, you know, like like a four-star resort and uh, a, a place of punishment, the island of Tartaros. But really it is a Christian maneuver that changes it from the place of the dead to this place of punishment. You see this in the Apostles' Creed. In the Greek or Latin of the Apostles' Creed, it is simply, um, there's this phrase, Jesus descended into Hades. And we translate it and say it as he descended into hell. And that creates all kinds of questions in people's mind. Well, why did Jesus go to hell, go into hell? And I've been asked that question. It stems from not understanding that the creed was written merely speaking of the place of the dead, as in 2 Peter, I think it is. And it becomes, later on, hundreds of years, this place of punishment. And so we, that's why we don't generally say it. We don't say it descended into hell anymore. We could probably say descended into Hades, but that's going to make all people go, well, what the heck is that? So, you know, it is that people say, well, are we just afraid to talk about hell? No, we're not afraid to talk about hell. But in the Apostles' Creed, it is that Jesus descends to the place of the dead. Because there is no place that escapes, that escapes the good news. No place. Even the place of the dead that escapes the good news.
Yes. Paradise. Yes. So when did the concept of heaven and hell, was that much later actually? And the Jews not believe in heaven? They just kind of hung out down there? I'm No, that's great. So one of the mistakes that we Christians make is we take our questions and our categories, such as, I want to go to heaven, and we impose it on the Jews of Jesus' day. And that is not a category in their mind. God is going to restore the nation of Israel. God is going to restore and resurrect the Israelites. And what you want to do is to be part of that. Right? Um, without this, this notion of escaping to somewhere else. I think that Arthur might have actually talked a little bit about in his sermon last week. That's really, that escaping part is really, is really Plato. So, when Jesus says, you're going to be with me in paradise, that word is an actually, it's actually a Persian word brought directly in, it's paradisos in the Persian, and it means a beautiful garden, and it's a way of I think, if you look at the other few references in the New Testament, it's a way of describing that after the thief's death, he will be with Christ in this beautiful place. But it's not the end of the story. The end of the story lies in resurrection. And are, those, are there those who will reject Christ in the end? Yes. Read Revelation 21 and 22. And 20, there are those who will reject God in the end. And what happens to them, we could, we could talk about. But the unfortunate thing is that we ended up, this is the world I was brought up in, we ended up thinking that when we die, there's two escalators, one that goes up and one that goes down. And if I'm a good boy, I'll go up. And if I'm a bad boy, I will go down. So you want to get the up, the up escalator. But that is not really what's depicted in, in Scripture. Because and I think a lot of it is because we lost the, the knowledge even that God's promises that one day we will be resurrected. You see? The, what Scripture really talks to us about is the our own resurrection, just as Jesus was, and the renewal of this earth. Um, this earth is our home. This earth, in the end, will be our home, but renewed and restored. It's not escaping to where would we escape to and be resurrected to, right? So bodily resurrection means a couple of things. One, you have to have a place to stand you're going to need gravity, right? Jesus, when he was resurrected and showed up in rooms, did he go flying off the planet or something? No, he walked in, he sat down, and he ate fish in front of them. So anyway, there's a lot to your question, really. And so we'll explore that because it takes... There's just a lot of things that we bring with us that we have to... Um, 
if we're really just going to read scripture as scripture, we really have to, to let some of those things change in this business of hell and punishment. Is, Purgatory is really not a biblical concept. It's, it's, you, can see the, you can see the logic of it. That, well, hey, I'm morally a mess when I die. So I really probably need a place to go get cleaned up or something. Right? Before I, you know. But it's really, you just can't, it's really one of man's creations. It's the logical outworking of something. It's a, that, the, the church thought it found in scripture, but it, it led to all sorts of bizarre, in my view, re religious rites. After, ah, oh, wow, now he's bringing, now, okay, so Dante's Inferno. Um, purgatory would have existed in the church before Dante's Inferno. I don't think he creates it, but I'm gonna close with this, so we can move on. There are two writings that shape so much of what we think is here. Dante's Inferno and Milton's Paradise Lost. Those two writings so filled the imagination of people that they think that when they go here, that's what they're going to find. And it shapes people's reading of scripture. And so they expect to find an up escalator and a down escalator. Expect to find circles of hell and the rest of it, but it's not. It's not there. So anyway, okay. Online question. <laughs> I believe this came up right when, you, when we were saying where do you go, and she put paradise and then a little thing, the Garden of Eden, where we are with God. Is no, I wouldn't make that connection except for the fact that the garden expresses the world as it should be, as God intended it to be. So, and so to that extent, yes, but the, the end, the story is really about resurrection and renewal and restoration of this planet, the new heavens, the new earth. That's the package. That's the package that the, world, that the Bible wants to get you to. And between now and then we are with Christ. Pack it with as much goodness as you can imagine. But the Bible doesn't say much about the time between we, when we die and Jesus returns and we are resurrected. The great promise of God goes beyond, imagine, it goes beyond being with Christ. It, to the resurrection of the body, that we will be with Christ and others materially, bodily. It blows the mind. But it's very clear, I mean, there's never been a heresy around this. Never, not one. Not one heresy around the resurrection of the body. Scripture's too clear. Okay, very good. So, which of Endor? Okay, so, now we're going to now we're going to go back to David and King Achish. Well, okay, the Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek, and Israel camped by the spring of Jezreel. This is all up at the top there. Okay? 
The lines are just showing you how the forces make their way up there. And why do they make their way up there? Because it's a good place to fight. It's like going... <laughs> I don't know why these things come into my head sometimes. Where do boxers go? Somebody's front lawn? No, they go to a boxing ring. It's like the right, right place to fight it out. So they're going to head up to the Jezreel Valley because they can, get it, they can get at each other much more easily there than they can on the mountains. As the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines asked, well, <laughs> what about these Hebrews? That's what, you know, Achish is one of five kings. So the other Philistine rulers and their top dogs there, you know, what's with these Hebrews hanging out back there? And Achish replied, is this not David, who was an officer of Saul, king of Israel, he has already been with me for over a year, because we know how long did he spend? A year and four months, right? And from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault with, no fault with him. So David did a really good job of getting inside with Achish and earning Achish's trust. Remember, some of it by, was by lying to him. Remember David was, uh, was attacking the Amalekites and so forth in the south, but he told Achish that he was actually attacking Judah's villages, other Hebrews. But that was a lie. David did not attack other Hebrews. He just was willing to lie. You know, people will ask, well, how could David do this? And, these people are like us. They lie, they cheat, they make really bad decisions. Nobody you're going to meet in Scripture other than Jesus is a perfect moral exemplar of how we should live our lives. They all reflect the sin that infects us after the rebellion in the garden in Genesis 3. They all do, David included. And so it's just, and God works through us. So God has to come down, figuratively, in that muck of humanity and work with what God has available, which often includes, you know, lying, cheating people. Isaac's wife conspires with her son Jacob against her own husband. <sighs> so, well, you know, the Philistine commanders, they don't know. Achish knows David, but they don't know David. So verse 6, verse 4, but the Philistine commanders were angry with Achish, and they said, send the man back that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle. They don't trust him. These are Hebrews. They're going to go fight Hebrews. He's an Israelite. They're going to go fight Israelites. Hebrews and Israelites are synonyms. He must not go with us into battle. Or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor? That would be Saul's favor, right? than by taking the heads of our own men. Reminder, 
Do not disturb. Thank you very much. Okay. By taking the heads of our own men. Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul is slain as thousands. David is tens of thousands. So the other Philistine kings and commanders, they just don't buy it. They just say to Achish, oh, come on. Come on. This is David. Do you really think he's going to go there and fight against his own people? Do you really think he's going to go there and fight against Saul? And Achish is ready to say, yeah, he's been with me for more than a year. I'm telling you, he's with us. But, verse 6, So Achish called David, and he said to him, As surely as Yahweh lives, you have been reliable, and I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me, David, until today I have found no fault in you. And the ruler, But the rulers, the other Philistine rulers, do not approve of you. So, turn back and go in peace, do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. So David and his men have been moving up there as, you know, he's got what? The last number we were offered was 600, right? So David and his men are going up to fight, but they are not going to have to turn around and go back. <laughs> because they're just not trusted. And you understand that, do you, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, I man, I, this part of it all makes sense to me. Of course they don't want David. They don't know David. Achish might have been fooled by David, and I do think that's what's been going on because David needed sanctuary. So the best way to get sanctuary and keep it was to ingratiate himself with Achish. But these other rulers, they don't know him. They only know what they've heard about him, and it certainly is not something that would lead them to trust him. After all, whom did he kill? Goliath. Might have been many years before, but he killed Goliath, the great champion of the Philistines. And now Achish is expecting them to trust David. And he's not going to do it. And David says, but what have I done? What have you found against your servant from the day I came to you until now? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Well. Is not that an ambiguous statement? Who is my Lord the King? Why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? Could be Saul. Meaning that David's planning on going up and fighting against the Philistines themselves. What would a, but what else, who else might it mean? my lord the king. Who else is the king in this story? Achish. Achish is the king. King just means, king just means like top dog. Chieftain would be a way to think about it. Okay? So sure he says, well, okay, I mean, why can't I go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? He doesn't say, your enemies, dear Achish. I don't know. I don't know. Shall we make something of that or not? Kind of up to the reader, huh? So Achish answered, I know that you have been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God. Okay? Now, (laughs) 
an angel of God. So are these in this world that has various peoples in it? Remember, we got the Philistines, we got the Israelites, we got the Amalekites, we got all sorts of folks. Are they familiar with one another's gods and goddesses? What do you think? Yes, sure they are. I mean, go back and read the book of Judges. I mean, sure. I mean, Samson and the rest. Yeah, they're familiar with. I mean, they, they live. It's, it's not. We tend to think of things on a map with national boundaries drawn that differentiate countries and so forth. That's not this world. What makes an Israelite an Israelite? Or what things do? What makes an Israelite an Israelite? They worship Yahweh. They don't yet know that there's only one God, but they worship Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is their God. Now, what else makes them an Israelite? They do follow the law of Moses. What else? Circumcision. Circumcision. What else? Their heritage. Their heritage. They're, they have the blood of Abraham flowing in their veins. They're all cousins. <laughs> They're all cousins. What part of Arkansas are they from? What part of... <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, you hear that? What part of Arkansas are they from? I don't know. I, I'll ask Robert Hasley someday. So, so, you know, and if you fast forward to Jesus' day, one of the issues that Paul has with his fellow Jews is their sense of ethnic privilege. They're the ones who have the blood of Abraham flowing through their veins. And it causes them to not understand why God chose them in the first place. Which, for, which was for the sake of others, not merely themselves. God says to Abraham, all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. They are chosen by God because they're part of this project to restore humanity. And it's so easily forgotten, so easily forgotten. Christians forget it all the time now. That... We are part of this project to go out, spread the good news, to, to, to be Christ to others, um, feeding and clothing and all the rest of it, so that, so that humanity will be restored to a right relationship with God. But it's easily forgotten, easily forgotten. And so many Christians right now um, in different parts are so quick to, to determine, well, who isn't really a Christian and the rest of it. And it's just not, it's not what our work is. So, um, all right. So Achish answered, I know that you have been as pleasing in my eyes as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the Philistine commanders have said he must not go up with us into battle. Now get up early, along with your master's servants, 
who have come with you and leave in the morning as soon as it is light. So head back. Get yourself some sleep, head back. First light, head back. So David and his men got up early in the morning to go back to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Right, so these are these cutscenes where you're, you're getting things that are happening. One is Saul going to the witch of Endor. Then one is David wanting his men going, but then getting sent back home, all leading up to what we already know, which is that the armies are going to end up here in the north, in the valley of Jezreel. And that's where the battle's going to happen, at the foot of Mount Gilboa. You know, these mounts are... Patty, you've seen them. They're not the Rockies, are they? No, they're not the Rockies. So, you have the, the, they're modest, modest mounts, we would say. But, but that's, that's where the armies can really get each, at each other. Um, either that or cross over into the plains here, but in this case, it's going to be here. The distances, again, are not great. So it's not like they're traveling hundreds and hundreds of miles to get somewhere to get at each other. But they are in sandals. But they are in sandals, right? I mean, how far do you want to walk in these? A lot of them are probably could be barefoot. All right, so any thoughts about David and Achish? Yes? You will see what I can do for you. Well, it's a way to express it, but there are all these there are there are these moments where you are you getting a glimpse into what David's ultimately doing? Is he really, really with the Philistines or not? And you get these little glimpses that make you kind of wonder, right? But explicitly in the text, he he's with Achish. Does Achish have good reason to trust David? Yeah, he does have good reason to trust David. When David... Will Achish have reason to feel betrayed? When it turns out that David won't... won't stay with the Philistines. As I'm looking down the road. He will. He will. I think David is really... He's, he's built trust and it's been even using some subterfuge and lying and violence and the rest of it to do it. Yes? Do you think that David knew that God would get him out of his compromising position? Do I think David knew that God would get him out of his compromised position? I think David simply has a great deal of confidence in God and he will he will go forward using his own judgment in the wisdom of the Lord in the expectation that God will rescue him. And why do I say that? Because of Goliath. Remember in the story of Goliath, what did we see from David? A complete and utter reliance on God and a belief that even though he's facing this nine-foot monster, 
that David would prevail because God was with him. So I think when David is, gets it right, when he's at his, what, when he's at his best? Yeah, are, are we all always at our best? No, no, so there, there's a lot, there's a lot of rough road ahead for David, which we'll, which we'll get into in 2 Samuel, okay? Um, Well, let's read on a little bit since we, we are going to want to be able to finish this up next in two weeks because we do not meet next Tuesday, correct? So look at your Friday updates and, and you'll see me reminding you. Now, so David has been sent home. Let me get the map back up here. And, and what's the name of the place he's going to head to? Ziklag. Really rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Ziklag, somewhere down there, you know, just somewhere down there. So David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev, that is to the south, and they raided Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. So the Amalekites, this ancient enemy, of the Israelites has come to David's town and because David and the men are all away I don't know who David might have left to look after the town besides the women and children the Amalekites are successful in destroying the town and taking all of these people captive now what is what awaits these people slavery Okay, this is across the world, across the world at this time. Warfare, conquering was a common way to, for these cultures to gain slaves. It was true, it was true for everyone. And um, it's, the Amalekites are carrying them away. Well, verse three, when David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, David was greatly distressed because the women, the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. So why, why are the men turning on David? Wouldn't have happened if they were there. David is the one who insists upon marching off with these Philistines only to be told by the Philistines to go home. And in that whole episode, which accomplished absolutely nothing, the village is attacked, burned, and these men's families are all carried off by the Amalekites. The Amalekites were the enemies of the Israelites after they crossed the Red Sea in the stories of the Exodus, yes. 
The men were bitter in spirit because of sons and daughters, but David found strength in Yahweh his God. This would be David's story. You see, David's story is not one of doing the right thing in all cases. What does distinguish David from others you meet in Scripture are that David does, he repents most of the time, but he turns to God. That's what you find in the Psalms, so many of them written by David, expressing David's heart. He, he turns to God. Um, and here we're told David found strength in Yahweh his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. This is the priestly garment. And Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of Yahweh, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? And look at the next verse. Pursue them, God says. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. Let's talk about the Psalms for a minute. For a long time, I would turn to the Psalms and I would read them. I would read them in the wrong way. I wouldn't necessarily imagine I was reading them for information or knowledge, which, which I like doing, but I, I know I wasn't really coming to the Psalms for that. But I didn't really know why I was reading them. The Psalms are the prayer book of these people. And the way to approach them is not to say, well, which Psalm is expressing my heart right now? The way to approach them is to let the Psalms shape your heart. That's why we when we read the Psalms, we should really read them prayerfully. They are prayers, and they are given to us to shape our hearts, not merely express whatever I think I'm feeling at the moment. You know? And, and because I don't always feel as distressed as David felt from time to time. But even the Psalms about distress shape your heart into realizing ever more truly that God is our rock. He is our fortress. He is the one that we can depend on and trust in the end. That there is nowhere else to go. But those, those are large, those aren't, those aren't knowledge words so much as they are heart words. Um, just as faith is really about trust which is much more about the heart than it is about, you know, intellect. So, David has now inquired of God, and God is telling him, go ahead and pursue the Amalekites. So when we come back next week, David will pursue the Amalekites, and then we will come to the climactic battle at Mount Gibeah, Mount Gilboa. Gibby is another place, Mount Gilboa. And what do we already know before we get to the battle of Mount Gilboa? Who will die there? Saul. Saul. Who else will die there? Sadly, Jonathan. Will the Israelites win the battle? No, we already know all of this. 
before we ever get before we even get to the recounting, which means that because we know these things, the questions on our mind aren't so much, well, how is this going to turn out, is what are going to be the implications of this? What's David going to do with this? Right? So anyway, and we will not be here next week, but we'll be here in two weeks, and I, I think in two weeks we will be able to finish up 1 Samuel. So, and then we come back from the July break, um, we will begin 2 Samuel. All right, so let's, any final thoughts or questions? All right, let's pray. Gracious Lord, like David, help us to know that we can find our strength in you, our refuge in you. The world comes at us pretty fast in 2023. There's stuff going on all over the place and we seem to know way too much about way too much of it. Help us push all that aside. Focus on you. Find our comfort, our peace in you. For indeed we are all in Christ together. Brothers and sisters, in all this together, empowered by your spirit, encouraged by your love. All this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.